You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25 is our text this morning, the end of chapter 1 here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So if that was a secret to you, you now know where Darren stole that from. Uh, that's uh, Peter quotes that passage. I like to read. All right, I've done that, I think, since I started pastoring here. It just struck me one day that I'm going to, this is how we're going to separate my words from God's words. And we're going to say the grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word, it stands forever. Peter's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 that Peter's, he's quoting a prophet there. And so it just has been a a thing I've done. And uh, you now have scripture memorized. You didn't even know it, but you have 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 24 or 25 memorized. So... Anyway, this morning we are heading into a new section, a new pericope of a new new train of thought in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, this section is very important for the life of the church of Jesus Christ. Um, So far what we've read in 1 Peter can be read very individualistically. Like you can, you can read this first, first chapter up to verses 22 here and just and really personally apply it. And it's beneficial, and I encourage you to do it. I, I do think God's word is meant to be personally applied, but you can talk about this inheritance that we have, this rejoicing, this salvation that was prophesied, this call to holiness, this call to have a living hope, this call to trust Jesus through all the trials of your life. It's absolutely individually applied, that you can read this and think, this is for me as an individual, as a singular person. It's totally okay and, and to read the letter this way and receive personal comfort and hope. But this letter is now going to change track there and, and we're going to have our eyes hopefully opened to a bigger reality that is going on. Because the reality is this, Jesus isn't just saving individuals or a singular individual. Jesus is saving a people. He's saving a people for himself. We could go back through the meta-narrative of biblical, redemptive biblical history. 
And we can see how from the beginning, Adam and Eve, going, going to Abraham, going to on down through the patriarchs and uh, to David and all down this line of individuals that God has always been about the work of saving for himself a people for his own name, for his own glory. They are called, we call them the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones from this mass of humanity. There is a specific group of people, the church, that God is calling to himself. Peter calls them elect exiles, right? At the beginning of this letter, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of this region in, in, uh, in, in uh, Asia Minor. There is this group of individuals, but they are this group. Specifically, Peter is now going to turn his focus into who we are, not as individuals, but who we are as a people together. Who we are as a people when we are together. This is one of the radical parts of Christianity. When you come to faith in Christ, you're not only saved from wrath, but you're saved for a new family called the church. You're saved from wrath. You're saved from condemnation. You're saved from the penalty of your sins, but you not stay there. You're saved from those things and you're saved into a new family, the body of Christ, the church. You're saved into something. This is what character and what characterizes this new family is what Peter is going to discuss with us. Big idea is that the gospel, this good news that endures forever, Peter says, this gospel, not only does it bring you life, but it changes your life. The gospel brings you to life and it changes your life. It changes what you love specifically this morning. And boy, I should pay better attention. That first John 4 passage is like the, is, is the great cross-reference to what Peter is going to talk about. All of this talk of the love of God and love for brother. The gospel, though, it changes your life. It changes what you love. A major implication of this that we've got to discuss is that for the Christian, there is no such thing as purely private Religion, purely private Christianity. The Christian life is lived out in the community of fellow Christians and therefore before a watching, a watching world. Private faith, private religion is, is an oxymoron for the Christian. There's nothing private about it. It is lived in community with other believers. It is lived together then before the watching world as this gathered people of God. Our, our modern context kind of champions private religion, like that's become a, a, a term that we use today that religion is meant to be privately held. You have privately held beliefs and the world is this beautiful, wonderful place if everyone just keeps their religious religions privately held and then lives in a secular society. Now we can have a long discussion about no one lives with their beliefs privately. Everything you do is, a, is an outflowing of your worldview and of your beliefs. There really is no such thing as privately held beliefs. We live out of our beliefs. But there's no such thing as a purely private Christianity. And not for Jesus and his apostles. It's trendy to say that those who have 
no true walk with Jesus are just private about their faith. You hear that, right? You'll hear that at funerals sometimes. And I'm not trying to, it's dangerous ground. I'm not trying to put anyone down. But they, you'll hear people say about reflections of certain individuals, they were just very private with their faith. And sometimes you reflect and you're like, yeah, you ain't kidding. They were real private. In fact, they didn't seem to have one whatsoever. They lived a life totally contrary to Christianity. And it's kind of popular to say, well, they just lived with it very privately. They lived with it very privately. Well, for those that we say that about, I'll just, there's about an 8% chance that's actually true. <laughs> I mean, there's a very, very small percentage of chance that's actually true because the work of God in a person's heart produces fruit. It does something. The gospel brings you to life and it changes your life. It changes what you love. Not perfectly, certainly, but progressively, yes, in some fashion, it does change who we are. In the opening of this section here, Peter refers to this, the church as those who have purified their souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now, commentators that I read through, they'll vary kind of on what they mean, what, what they think Peter means by their obedience to the truth. Um, some will talk about... Uh, this, that this is the, I, I, the, the stance that I agree with, I think, is that this obedience to the truth is a scene of the gospel and believing who Jesus is and what he has done. There's, there's this call to repent, this call to believe. And by so doing, when you hear the gospel message, when you hear the truth of your desperate state before a holy and righteous God, that you are a sinner in need of saving, and then the good news that what Jesus has done is he has come to earth, he's in the incarnation, born of the virgin's womb, lived the righteous life none of us have lived. We all transgressors, we all sinning and falling short. Jesus, though, shows up, lives the righteous life we have lived. And then not only that, but he dies the death that we deserve as transgressors. So that everyone, hearing my voice this morning, myself included, every one of us, turning from our sins, trusting in Christ, repenting and believing, can be forgiven of their sins. As Revelation talks, Revelation talks about, we can wash our garments in the blood of the Lamb and be made white as snow, righteous, holy in God's sight. And so obedience to the truth is believing the truth of the gospel. That's obedience to the truth. Here's the message of truth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's, that's a truth. Repent. Look upon the, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a truth. And obedience to the truth is believing in this gospel message. He's speaking of this obedience to the truth. And then in verse 23, Peter calls this being born again. Since you have been born again. No one makes themselves born at a certain moment in time. We've got a niece who's currently like in the process of 
which is, you know, she's had to go to the hospital, thought she was having a baby, she's gone home. They're trying to make it stay a little longer inside of the womb. And that, that baby is not in there trying to figure out, oh, I think I want to be born on a Wednesday. Or, you know, I kind of like, uh, you know, I want to get a little bigger into the dates of November. They're not deciding that. No one decides at some moment to be born. It is something God does. And the same is with being born again, that God is the one who does this work. It's something God does in opening the eyes of the unbeliever and convicting them of their sin to see who they are in God's sight. It's opening their eyes to the truth of what Jesus done. What is clear though, this purification of their souls, since you have been born again, this purifying of your souls, this being born again, it is not produced by our acts of obedience. So you can see there is this obedience to the truth. And so you can take that and you can try to, try to make it into salvation is my obedience, my doing, my, my, my acting out of good things, my acting out of truth, which is contrary to then the next passage, which is this being born again is something God does. It is not what you do, it is what God has done. And your obedience to the truth is believing what God has done, grasping hold of God by faith. Peter says this purification happened for a real life. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, believing in this gospel for, there's a for, for a sincere brotherly love. We are saved for a sincere brotherly love. And that doesn't mean just like it's, it's Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia. It's this, it's brotherly love that there is this, we could talk about all the different kinds of loves that the Bible talks about, but it's familial love that God has, you've purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. This love for one another is not done to produce a pure heart. And this is where we get into the indicatives and the imperatives. I know you got, maybe whether you liked those words or not, but that our, our doing comes from our being. Who, who we are makes a difference on who, what we do. And the, the, a religion wants to turn that around and say, what you do will make you who you are. But the Christian sees that it is who you are, seeing what God has done in your heart that makes you purified, your, that purifies your soul that makes you born again. And then living in that reality, that impacts what you do, who you are by the grace and mercy of God. And if you've had eyes to see the gospel, then what you are influences what you do. As God works in the life of a Christian, one of the things he does is he produces a love for one another, a sincere, earnest brotherly love, love for one another. Paul, in his opening prayer, the book of Colossians, he, he's thankful. He says, ever since I've heard of you and your faith in Christ and of your love for all God's people. Colossians chapter one, uh, verse four. Since we heard of your faith in Christ, he's praying a prayer of thanks. Since we heard of your faith in Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints. That this reality of what God has done in giving us the gospel and saving us 
is that one of the reactions of that, the resulting realities, is that we then are saved for brotherly love. We are those who love each other earnestly from a heart made pure and brought to life with love through the gospel. I think that the connection of family is one that really we can understand. We talks about brotherly love, that the gospel forms in us brotherly love between each other. Using that, that type of love is easy to understand. We, we all have families and we all have people that, that, are, that are in our lives, that have been a part of our lives, that they never will not be a part of our lives. No matter how annoying they may get, no matter how difficult they may be, some of you are smiling, chuckling, some of you are like, Darren, you're so mean. Don't pretend. <laughs> no matter how difficult they can be, they are your family. And you're going to love them. You're going to care for them. You're going to serve them. You're going to seek to help them. You're going to, to love them no matter what. Even if your relationships in your family are not that great, there is a special bond that is formed from those relationships. You cannot choose your family. You don't choose your family. They come into existence, your siblings, your parents, they just are who they are. That's, that's the way that it has come about. They are yours and you are theirs for good or for ill. Now, generally, a ton of devotion and love is given to those relationships. But what does Peter call those relationships? He says, you're born again. And he, he's, he's talking about this in verse 23. Born again. So there's the, the reality of, of birth we all have been born at some level of perishable seed. That there's a, a natural process by which we all are conceived and then given birth. And that is by perishable things. It's by perishable seeds. We won't go through that kind of a class here this morning, but we all understand that it is through perishable things, things that are wearing out, things that will one day die and fade away like the grass and like the flower, that we all have our mortal existence from perishable seed, perishable existence. We ourselves are wearing out and will wither and fade away. But that, the, that's, and that's our family connection is through all of these perishable this perishable reality. However, if you've been born again, you're not made of perishable stuff, but of imperishable, imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God. What happens to create the family of God is that people are born again of imperishable seed. You can hear the intended increase of value and importance if your family love for those that are in your family, right and good, and I would absolutely support, you should love your nuclear family. That's who God has put you in a family with. But Peter is saying, even ramped up, that family that is created out of perishable seed, there is a family that is created out of imperishable seed. That the living word of God has opened your eyes has moved in your heart, has brought you to life. God has elected and saved you by his mercy and by his grace. And so then our family not, doesn't exist out of perishable seed, but we are bonded out of imperishable seed. He's stepping it up of how vital the church is for one another. 
The relationship accomplished through the precious blood of Jesus is one that will not fade away or will not run its course out. It is one that will persist into eternity. Revelation 7, we read this morning in Sunday school, the day is coming. We're all, all that who are God's people are going to be gathered around the throne, inherit a new heavens and a new earth. And there we will be with God forever. The imperishable sea that has made us brothers and sisters in Christ will endure forever. Therefore, Peter calls us, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because out of your obedience to truth, you have been made family. We are born, because we are born of imperishable seed, we and the relationships that we are now in with all of those likewise born again will be united as a people throughout all eternity. In this relationship, what does Peter tell us to do? To love one another. Jesus did not save us for a Sunday morning service. I love the Sunday morning service. When I, that, that cost me to say something. I love being with you all on Sunday mornings. I, I actually like Sunday morning. Jesus did not save us for a sincere Sunday morning service. He didn't save us for an entertaining Sunday morning service. Jesus didn't save us for a nice building. And I like nice buildings. Jesus did not save us for a nice building or a nice building project. Jesus did not save us for meaningful community service projects. Oh, there, it's up there. He didn't save us for sincere Sunday morning services, entertaining Sunday morning service, a nice building. He didn't save us for meaningful community service. He didn't save us for political action. And there's a lot of Americans that need to hear that today. Jesus did not save us for political action to become a voting block that politicians can cater to and rile up. That is not what Jesus died to do. That's not what Jesus saved us for. Jesus saved us that we might love one another with a sincere brotherly love as the body of Christ. Us together before a watching world showing what it looks like when God saves a people, draws them to himself in his grace and mercy, and that love that God has for them, remember the first John 4 passage? We love, not because we love him, but we love because he first loved us. And that love then overflows from us to our brothers. This means that when we say we exist to glorify God by being and making disciples, our love for one another is going to be the center, at the center of all that we do. You know, it's not just the pastor that's hired to love. When you, when you read this passage, it, Peter isn't writing to just pastors of these places. He's not saying, hey, pastors, you've got to be the ones that love the people. Now, pastors should love the people. I'm not saying they shouldn't. But all of God's people are invested in this. We do not, as the body of Christ, look to simply hire one person to do all the loving. God commands us to love. Let's hire a guy. Hey, you're supposed to be the one that loves all of us. And then we create all the problems and you bring all the love. No, we all create all the problems and we're all on the hook to, to love one another. This passage is for you in the community of Christ, in the body of Christ, to love one another sincerely with a pure heart, earnestly from a pure heart. All of God's people are invested in this project. 
And this love is not just a mildly interested or a facially um, supportive love. And you guys, you all know what I mean. I, could, I should think of like a good term for this. It's like grocery store aisle love. Like we love grocery store aisle love. How are you doing? Like my favorite, I, don't, you, I know you all have had this happen. Someone you haven't seen in years, or maybe you're in the next aisle over, and a couple of people you know they haven't seen each other in years. They meet in the grocery store. Oh, how you doing? Nice to see you. It's great. You know, so, you know, what are you up to now? You know, and two minutes later they leave. It was so nice seeing you. You didn't, you just ran each other. Okay, okay, yeah, if it was really that nice, you'd set up to actually see the person. If you actually loved and cared for the person, you'd actually, let's go get coffee. Let's have a meal together. But there's this mildly interested, that exists in a lot of churches today. A, see you on Sunday morning. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Nice to catch up. See you next week. That is a mildly interested and just facially, on its face, supportive love. That is not loving earnestly like Peter is talking about. How we love each other is important. Not with brief pats on the back or brief smiles, but sincere, earnest, real love for each other. Love is a specific way of being with each other. There's a reason why we talk about telling the truth in love. Have you ever heard that statement, speaking the truth in love? You ever heard that statement? You said they'll talk about, God, I got to speak the truth in love. And there's this little caveat because there's an awareness that sometimes speaking the truth is going to hurt. Speaking the truth is going to be offensive at some level. But there is this reality, this understanding, the, the phrase to speak the truth in love is aware that there is that love sometimes obligates you to say the hard thing. Our modern idea of love is saying that love for me means making much of me no matter my desires or my direction. No matter who I am or what I want to do, no matter what I give myself to, I demand that love for me looks like you just saying I'm wonderful even if I'm marching in a destructive way. That's the modern definition of love. But love will often be corrective when desires or direction are destructive. I mean, think of God himself. I mean, 1 John 4, we, just, we read the passage this morning. God is love. Okay, if God is love, does God ever give any directives or corrective advice? <laughs> I wouldn't call it advice even. Corrective commands? How can he be love and yet give corrective commands? They, they're not mutually exclusive. They go together. That you can love and say, this is good. What you are doing is wrong. They're, both of these things can exist. And love is, is, being, is loving a specific way. It is a specific way of being with each other. Both can exist at the same time. Incredible love and incredible correction. Love is a, a specific way of being with each other. And love is a specific way of being with each other. The phrase exists, you know, of, of quality over quantity. You know, they'll talk about, you know, that, that's, you know, it's, it's important that you do a, do a few things well over doing just a ton of things poorly. Quality over quantity. Okay. But do you know what gives you the best chance to produce high quality when it comes to relationships? Do you know what gives you the best chance at producing high quality? A lot of quantity. 
Like when you think about your spending time with your kids, I mean, it, trying to give a half an hour that's going to be this most wonderful, magical, meaningful moment with your children. I, has anybody ever tried that? <laughs> and then all of a sudden it devolves into, you're lucky if you get 30 seconds of, of like, our bedtime routine, we, I try to read books every night with the kids and, and, it, you know, and picture books. And some weeks, it's like it is pulling teeth to get quiet for like a minute. And so I could say, well, the, what the hope is, is that out of this vast amount of quantity, quality does begin to rise. That it does begin to have meaning. And so when it comes to love for one another... There is just a reality that as the body of Christ, the best way we're going to have high quality of love for each other is in quantity of being together, of care, being invested in each other's life, spending time with each other, knowing what's going on in each other's lives, making phone calls, having meals, praying with one another, investing life together so that the opportunity for love exists. It's a large part, that's, that's a larger part of the problem since COVID, uh, you know, being involved in church primarily through online sources and online um, avenues, watching a live stream, listening to a podcast, maybe even checking a few of them out. The trouble is there's no avenue for actual love to happen in your life. And for you to actually love the body of Christ, those who are difficult and, 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 and to, for them to love you back who you are difficult, there's no ability to know familial love or to express your own. So what are we to do? Even though we hear this great high call to love one another, we fail on many fronts. What is it for what 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 is left? What is our response to be? The first is just to repent. There we didn't recognize Reformation Day last Sunday very well, but Martin Luther in his 95 theses Top of the list, the life of the Christian is one of repentance. The life of a Christian is one of repentance. We are fully aware. Even in this call to be holy, we fall short. In this call to love one another, we recognize, I do not love all that well in many different respects. And so the, what we do then in response to that is be honest enough to admit it. Maybe there's someone in the congregation you have not loved all that well. Maybe you should say, I'm sorry I didn't love you all that well. I didn't care for you in a way that I should have. Repent. Your failure to love your Christian brothers and sisters is sin. Gossip about your brothers and sisters in Christ behind their back is sin. It's a failure to love them. It's a failure to love them. And that is sin. And so what must happen is repentance. Repentance. Remembrance is the next thing that must happen. Remember Christ's love for you. It was not out of a response to your loveliness that Christ loved you. It was out of his own loveliness and his love that he set his love upon you. And then in repenting, remembering Christ's love for us, we then, yes, go and reproduce. How do we reproduce it? Only by seeing the great love with which Christ loved us. This imperishable seed that brought us to life, this good news is the good news that God loved us and gave himself for us. You can read Philippians chapter 2 where he's talking about have this frame of mind among yourselves that Christ, though he was in, though he did not consider quality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. 
being made in the image and likeness of man, took on the role of servant, of slave, being obedient even to the point of death upon a cross because of his love for his people. That is Christ's example of love laid out for us. It is the good news that God loved us and gave himself for us. Christ gave of himself. He loved us with his life. And may God work in us by the Holy Spirit that we would do and love the same. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning. If, if this morning as we just have spent some moments focusing on the call to love brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray for conviction of sin. If there is an area of our life where we have not loved well, if there is an area of our life where we have not cared as we should, I pray, Father, that you would make it clear to us, not for, the, not for beating ourselves up, not for making ourselves just uh, wallow in our own insufficiency, but God, that we would see it so that we could confess it because we know that it is your love then towards us that as we confess that sin to you, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, bring repentance. God, bring remembrance to our minds as we get ready to celebrate communion. The broken body, the shed blood of Jesus. Why was it necessary? Because we don't love as we should. So Christ went to the cross to take that sin upon himself so that as we repent, as we remember the work of Christ, we can then, filled and enjoying your love for us, walk out of these doors and love each other. We can gather as the body of Christ. We can care for one another, fueled not by our hope to impress you, but fueled by the reality that you already love us in Christ. God, anchor our hearts in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.